Let's take a minute before we move any further and, and just kind of open it up. And I wonder if anybody wants to offer like one word uh, for your experience of these blessings. Maybe it's um, a way you experienced them last week when we talked through them. Or maybe they've worked on you in the past week as you've been thinking about that. Or maybe even just now, having a chance to not just like hear words, but to kind of like reflect and move through them. Um, anybody just have like one word for what you've experienced in that that you want to share with the room? Gratitude. Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Grateful. 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 Yeah. Enlightening. Enlightening. Surrender. Surrender. Nice. Thanks. Sorry? Stillness. Yeah, nice. Right on. Well, thank you for um, going through that with us together. I think there's something powerful about uh, praying together, reflecting together, you know? It can feel good to know that you're not the only one um, moving through these things, right? Uh, we, wanna, we wanna pick up where we left off and explore the rest of the way that Jesus takes us into his teaching uh, and to consider these other blessings that he offers at the beginning of Matthew 5. But to do that, I'm actually going to back up a step again. And I, I want to observe something because something happens between the beginning of these blessings and the end of the blessings. Let me see if I can show you what I mean. So again, as review, Jesus starts here in Matthew 5, verse 3, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Like if you have a poverty within you, I call you blessed. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, those who have suffered great loss, have had something taken from them. And then he blesses the meek, those who have had their power bridled or stifled in the world. And then he blesses uh, those who are aching for things to be right within them or around them, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So in those four blessings, I don't know what you hear, but I hear a description of pretty profound disempowerment. Like that these are descriptions for what we feel and how we experience life when some of the worst things have happened to us and when it can feel like we are overcome by the things that have happened to us, right? So I don't know about you, but that's how I feel those first four blessings. But then let me take you to the last blessing and show you something interesting. The last blessing at the end of the Beatitudes is Jesus saying in Matthew 5:10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now what's interesting to me about this is my read on those who are persecuted because of righteousness is that now Jesus is talking about the most powerful kind of people. Let me explain what I mean. First of all, by persecution, I don't think Jesus means moments when you have felt inconvenienced or uncomfortable. I don't think Jesus is talking to American Christians who are mad that somebody said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. I think he is speaking of real persecution, and real persecution is when evil has set its sights on you and decided to try to take you out. Now, the reason I think this describes a powerful person is because I think evil is a limited resource. I think evil has a limited arsenal. And so if evil has decided to marshal its limited resources and use them against you, you must be the kind of person that poses a threat to evil, that you pose a threat to the disorder. And so the disorder has to come after you. Now, the reason I think evil is a limited resource is because at the center of the Jesus story, we see evil bringing everything it has against Jesus. Jesus is persecuted. Jesus is crucified. And what's the worst that evil can do? It can kill you, right? 
So evil unloads its whole arsenal against Jesus, and Jesus is there crucified. But of course, once evil has exhausted everything it has against Jesus, there's still more to the story, right? Because evil is a limited resource, but love is not. And love raises Jesus out of the grave. And so I think evil is a limited resource, love is not. And at the end, Jesus has a blessing for those who evil thinks it has to come after. Like the blessing for the persecuted is a blessing for people for, who, whose lives are so potent, so powerful for good, so effective in the world that something about who they are or what is happening in their life is such an affront to evil that evil has to come after you. And that's the same Jesus speaking to people who he begins by talking about your disempowerment, about all that's taken from you, about all of your suffering. Uh, By the way, this is my reading on hope, that Jesus can begin with blessings for the most disempowered people suffering the worst kinds of things, and by the end of it, think that he is speaking to people who could become so powerful in the name of good or love or God that evil has to come after you. And the reason I think that's hope is is because I don't think hope is the promise that life will get easier. I think that's a very, like, Western Americanized vision of hope. I don't think hope is the promise that things could get comfortable And I don't think hope is the promise that we just sit on our hands while God does things without us in the world. I actually think the best definition of hope is that God has invited us into the good work in the world and that God wants to live God's life in us. And not that we do it on our own, but also that we're not out of the game, but God actually wants to enlist us in the cause of goodness in the world. And that if we go on this journey, if we kind of follow this path, we might discover that our lives have become conduits for the life of God in the world. That feels like hope to me in the most profound way. And so I think Jesus is actually charting a trajectory toward hope and talking to people who can become powerful for the good. But now let's look at the back half of the Beatitudes, the second half of the blessings that he gives, because I think within them is a clue for how Jesus sees people moving from disempowerment to lives of great impact in the world. So uh, after we, the first four Beatitudes, the fifth one that we read is here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And something about merciful is, is why I think something is turning here. We've gone from describing radical disempowerment to something else. Because to be merciful is to assume that you have the power to hit back and you refrain. Right? I'm, there's, there's something here about a person's capacity to act in the world in a certain way. And Jesus is describing people who choose not to act that way in response to the things that they have suffered or the wounds that have come against them or the grievances that they have in the world, right? Now, there's a paradox or an irony almost in this blessing because, uh, well, first of all, if if you're merciful, if if you find yourself acting with great mercy toward other people, doesn't that feel good? Don't you just feel like magnanimous? Don't you just like feel like, I am, I'm so... I have so much largesse of mercy for the world. I'm pretty much like God, you know, like I'm just so good in the world. But, but here, here's the irony, right? We are never more convinced of our own righteousness than when we know that we've been wronged, right? There's something about um, that mindset when you know that you've been wronged, you can get really trumped up on how right you are, right? And that can become your entire way of showing up in the world. But then Jesus blesses the merciful, awesome, right? Like, yeah, Jesus, I know, we're pretty tight, right? We're, we're pretty good. And then he says, for you will be shown mercy. And you'd be like, oh, because this assumes that I'm every bit in much, as much in need of mercy as the person I'm showing mercy to, right? Like whatever I'm forgiving, whatever way I am relenting from vengeance, it assumes that there are probably reasons that somebody would be just in committing vengeance against me. That somebody would be just in working out their grievance against me. And the only way that you can like swallow this pill 
and enjoy this blessing is to also own the fact that you're every bit as much in need of mercy as the person that you were choosing to show it toward, right? So we have a blessing for the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And it, it strikes me that this also manifests this thing that we've been saying, that this is less about like summoning within ourselves virtue or power and more about becoming conduits. Because maybe mercy isn't something that you can possess like a commodity. Maybe mercy is only something that you can swim in like a current or let it flow through you. And so you may not know when the mercy that you've been shown ends and the mercy that you will show begins. But to open your heart to the mercy that you need is to also open your heart to the mercy that you will give and to let these things just kind of flow through you. But here we have a person who is starting to act in the world in a powerful way because to show mercy is to refuse to, it's to opt out of that cycle of retributive violence that just keeps happening over and over again. You hurt me, I hurt you. You hurt me, I hurt you. And it just escalates and escalates. But to, to, to opt out of that cycle and to find the capacity to intercept some of this pain without throwing it back, things start to change in the world when that happens, don't they? Uh, what about the next blessing here? Uh, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, this one's, um, I've been working on this one for a long time. Uh, they will see God. What's a word for people who see God? Um, besides, you know, crazy, but like, uh, what's a word for like having the capacity to see God? Often we would use the phrase like enlightened for that, right? Like your vision has been enlightened, right? However, have you noticed how easy it is to feel most enlightened when your vision is most darkened because you think the things that you have seen that have enlightened you are like negative? Like how many of us in the last few years have felt tragically enlightened by what we've learned about the world and about power structures and about the things that happen behind closed doors? There's been so much revealing in the last few years, hasn't there? The, the curtain's been pulled back in so many ways, but what's been the effect of that on your heart? If, if you were anything like me, I know that like, like there's been a kind of a darkening effect and the more I see some of the darkness around me, the more it kind of creeps in and then I start to see it everywhere. Uh, by the way, one spiritual teacher says that we see things as, as we are, not as they are, right? That, that our eyes are our lenses and that like the things that we are working out within become the way that we see the things that are without, right? And I think this is actually a blessing for people who learn to see God in even the dark corners who know that real enlightenment is not a darkened worldview, but a brightened one. And it's not naive. It's not pretending that things that are dark aren't dark, but it's somehow developing the capacity to see God even in those dark corners, right? I think this is actually a word about cynicism. And I think Jesus knows that cynicism is a threat to our capacity to live the life of God in the world. Um, have you felt cynical lately? I have. It's, it's been an era where, to quote one of my friends who works on conflict in the Middle East, he says the cynics have all the facts. And you're like, dang it, it can feel that way, you know? Um, here's a metaphor for how I think this actually works, though, about cynicism and, and how we see. Uh, and the metaphor I'm going to use is not meant to make a statement about the thing I'm using in the metaphor, so please just let it be a metaphor and hang with me. Uh, let's talk about concealed carry uh, weapons. <laughs> you didn't see that coming, did you? Uh, there's this pile of data where people um, are trying to understand like psychology around gun carrying and stuff like that. And what they've done is they've taken people who themselves conceal carry a weapon and they've had those people in places that are full of other people. So large crowd environments, it could be a church service, could be a concert or a sporting event or just like a really crowded restaurant or bar. 
And they'll ask the people who carry a concealed weapon to estimate how many other people around them do they think are carrying a concealed weapon. And what they found is that people who themselves carry a concealed weapon overwhelmingly overestimate the amount of other people who carry a concealed weapon. Now, that study is not enough to let us know in which way the causation works, but there's a correlation there. And I don't know if it's the, maybe the kind of person who is likely to overestimate the threat around them then chooses to carry the weapon with them, or if there's something about choosing to carry the weapon with them that leads them to overestimate the threat around them. I don't know which way it goes, but there's this, there's this connection between the threats that you see around you and then the threat that you're going to carry with you, right? And I think there's something there about the heart of cynicism and the thing that Jesus is speaking to here. I think our politics right now are racked with cynicism, and cynical leaders will do their best to convince you that everybody's corrupt, so why even look for virtue, right? If everybody's corrupt, then it's all equal, and then just go for whoever's protecting your interests the most, you know? Uh, cynicism is like a currency that is being traded in, in, in many ways right now. And I think Jesus knows that cynicism is actually a real threat because if you think the darkness is darker than it is, well, you might just go along with it. Conversely, people who can see God in every dark corner might be the kind of people who can dance with the life of God in every dark corner. And if you are dancing with the life of God, even in the dark corners, there might be a little more light. Next blessing that Jesus offers, uh, the next verse, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Um, you've heard me say this before. I used to think this was so, like, sentimental and romantic. Isn't that sweet? Like, peace, it feels very Miss America pageant, you know, like, I just want world peace, you know? Isn't that wonderful? Who could, who could have a problem with people who want peace, right? Unless you've ever done the work of peacemaking. And then you know it's very different, right? Because peacemaking almost always goes something like this. We all belong to groups, right? We all have group identities. I don't know what your group identity is. Christian, not Christian, Republican, Democrat, suburban, city, whatever. We all have these group identities, right? And then in the work of peace, what you'll discover is that there's conflict between groups. And that conflict can take many different forms. But if you realize there's conflict between groups, you, you might feel compelled to step into the space between those groups to try to bring them together or offer some kind of reconciliation or some justice or to like do something about it, right? But what did you just do? You stepped across your own group line into the fray in the middle, which means not only do you have enemies on this side who don't like your group, but the group that you were a part of now sees you as a traitor. And the only thing worse than an enemy is a traitor. You know that, right? The only thing a group hates more than its enemies is the traitors from within who stepped out of the group or crossed the boundary lines to call, to call both sides to some real peace in the world. And I have discovered over and over again that real peacemakers, people who try to bring healing and reconciliation to intractable conflict, real peacemakers often, often find themselves forsaken by all of the groups. They're welcome nowhere. And I think what Jesus knows is that while you might feel the loss of that group belonging, you will discover a belonging with God that can never be taken from you. And once you discover that belonging with God, you won't care that they took your membership card away. You might even be able to laugh about the fact that they thought that they could hurt you by taking your membership card away because you will have a belonging that runs deeper and is more enduring than the, the group that you were a part of. This is an important word for the world we're in right now too, right? Have you noticed that there are some group identities that are clashing in the world right now? That the lines have been drawn. Uh, one scholar who looks at all this stuff talks about identity, identity and group, right? So identity is like, who am I and how do I know I'm safe? 
And then group is whatever you belong to to like reinforce identity, right? And so often if you ask people like who they are or how they identify, they're going to start naming group identities, right? I'm one of the people who whatever, or I'm one of, you know, I'm, I'm one of these people, right? And what the scholar observes is that identity can be latent and quiet in your life. Group membership doesn't matter that much for most human beings until they feel threatened. And the line is identity activates under threat. So you might have this latent identity, this kind of group membership that you've been carrying with you for a while, but once you feel threatened, that's when that, that identity gets activated, right? And this goes all the way back to the history of our species where to, to know what group you were a part of, like quite literally, was how you knew you were going to be safe, right? And uh, we, so we, we kind of have this brain wiring that's just kind of teed up for this thing. And a lot of that's been going on right now. There are a lot of real threats in the world. There's also a lot of conjured threats in the world, right? Uh, again, back to political life. I'm sorry, but it's just so true that... Um, Political leaders who know how to amass power will convince the group that they lead that they are threatened and that I got your back. That's just politics 101, right? And you can just feel that happening so um, loudly right now, right? Well, you want to be the kind of person who is potent for good in the world? Learn to be a peacemaker, but as you do, you might have to, you might have to let go of whatever group you belong to, whatever identity has like, mattered so much to you and go out into a a desert place where the only belonging that you know is with God, but while you're out there, you might discover that the only belonging you need is with God. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who's going through some painful growing, and one of the things that's been painful about that growing is that growing has led to them being alienated, like socially. And I was, I was telling him, I said, I think almost any evolution requires periods of loneliness. And uh, it's not really comfortable, but I think the gift that's being given is in those periods of loneliness, uh, we discover this belonging with God that's harder to tap into and we still have a really closely knit group, right? And then we have uh, the blessing for the persecuted. The blessing for those whose lives have become so consequential, so potent for love, for, for good, for for the life of God in the world, that evil has to amass its limited resources to try to take you out. And when that happens, you don't have to think that you're failing. When that happens, that will be a compliment to you. <laughs> it will be a sign that your life has become consequential in the name of good. Uh, that's my reading on Jesus' Beatitudes, that somehow they start with us radically disempowered, but that with these blessings, Jesus is wooing us into our powerlessness uh, by the way, like when something bad happens or when the world breaks around you, don't you long to feel powerful in the face of it? Isn't that what you want, right? But have you noticed that so often the things that we do to try to feel powerful when things break end up breaking things further? Have you ever noticed that? Uh, there's a, a scholar named Ernst Becker who says, uh, men historically have um, caused more evil by wanting heroically to triumph over it. But the very desire to triumph over evil, when we try to make ourselves powerful in the face of evil, we just cause more harm, which is why I think Jesus starts by wooing us further into our powerlessness, which is those early beatitudes, those early blessings. And then, now that he has allowed us to face our powerlessness, he starts to describe to us a real picture of power when he speaks of mercy and when he speaks of purity of heart and peacemaking and the kind of person who's persecuted. Uh, that's my read on the setup. And again, last week and this week, we're just trying to kind of frame the Sermon on the Mount so that the rest of the time that we spend in it, we, we really have a handle on what it's trying to do in us. 
One more thing to frame it, though. I want to go to the other end of the sermon. So let's go to the end of the sermon and see how Jesus wraps it up. And between the beginning and the end, I hope we can really get our arms around what everything in the middle is supposed to do in us. So uh, here at the end of the sermon, Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And then he goes on and says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Well, this is interesting to me. Jesus seems to be saying that some of the most fervent and performative expressions of religious experience or devotion are illegitimate or they don't matter at all. This is comforting to me because I don't know about you, but I've been in like religious or faith spaces where there are really dramatic or performative expressions of religious experience or faith that are like happening and I like, I, I've not had one of those, or that's not how faith shows up for me, and I feel like a failure, and I wish I could like generate that kind of fervor, and Jesus seems to know that religion can often do that, and people often do that, but he's like, no, that's, that stuff's a red herring. That's not the point, and I think the reason he says it at the end of the sermon is he's just spent three chapters telling you what it actually looks like, and it's not fireworks and pyrotechnics. It's things like loving your enemy, and like laying down your life. It's things like uh, forgiveness. It's things like choosing not to have an exploitative relationship with the people around you, that that's the actual life of the kingdom. And here he seems to be saying, there are counterfeit expressions out there that are gonna be really tempting and alluring, and they seem really dramatic and powerful, but please listen to what I've been saying for three chapters, because I've been trying to give you a taste for the real so that you won't be so easily indicted or distracted by these big performative displays. I'm giving you a taste for the real, but if you don't know the real, you get hooked by the counterfeit, right? All the more reason to really listen to what he's saying in chapter five and six and seven. And then Jesus goes on with with this image that might be familiar to you. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Uh, one more slide here. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You remember last week I pointed out that often we don't know what to do with the Sermon on the Mount, so we just ignore it, <laughs> or we try to turn it into a metaphor, or we construct a systematic theology that neutralizes the direct teachings of the sermon and acts as if they were never meant to be lived out. But here I'm like, Jesus seems really clear. Hear these words and put them into practice. It's so plain, right? Like I said last week, I think if Jesus heard some of the things that we do with the sermon to kind of relativize it or dismantle it or dismiss it, I think he would get very frustrated because <laughs> he ends the whole thing saying like, I want you to put this into practice. And then there's this response from the crowds. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. And this phrase that Jesus taught with authority and that people were amazed at his teaching, uh, that comes up some, several times in the Gospels. There's other moments where crowds respond to Jesus and his teaching and saying it has real authority, like real weight. And I have wondered, like, if we could go back in time 2,000 years and, and be there in person and experience what these crowds experienced, like, wh- what was it that felt like authority to them? Like, what were they experiencing or seeing or hearing or noticing that caused them to say, there's real authority here? 
And the, the more I read the Gospels and think about Jesus' life and his teachings and think about my own experience where I have felt like there's real authority in the room and when there isn't, what, what comes to mind for me, and this is just a theory, I might be wrong about this, but that the authority that they sensed in Jesus was the authority of a person who lived in utter fidelity to the things that he was saying. That this is not theoretical for Jesus. He didn't read this stuff in a book. This isn't an idea that he had. This is in his fiber, in his being, to live this way, to, to be allowing the life of the Father to be lived through him, for God to live God's life through him, that this is Jesus' very way of being in the world. So that when Jesus talks about it, it is backed up with such an authority or a credibility because it has integrity with the life that he's actually living. And then if you think about the Beatitudes and you think about Jesus' life, it's fairly dramatic how you see Jesus embodying the very blessings that he has been describing. So let me take you through that like one more time. The Beatitudes begin with a poverty of spirit, with an emptiness. Uh, There's a meditation on the life of Jesus in the book of Philippians, a sort of poem in chapter two of that book. Uh, From what we can tell, it's like one of the earliest Christian artifacts we have because it seems to have been a song that was sung in early Christian circles, even before the New Testament was written. And in this song, the opening line, again, this is kind of mysterious, but it says, be like Christ, who though he had uh, equality and authority with God, did not consider that something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Like he allowed himself to be emptied. That's the way the, the poet of that, that song in Philippians 2 understands the mystery of Christ, that there was an actually strangely like an emptiness there that perhaps allowed the life of God to flow through him. And then just as Jesus promises the kingdom of heaven for those who have a poverty within them, the Philippians text says that Jesus was then raised up and seated in a, in a kind of kingly throne and given the kingdom. What about mourning and lament? If you read the gospel text, one thing you can't say is that Jesus was a stoic. <laughs> Jesus doesn't move through the ancient world stone-faced and distant from the emotional experience of the things that are happening around him. Jesus weeps on a regular basis in the Gospels. It's really striking. Jesus doesn't live at distance from the pain and suffering around him. He lives intimately with it in a way that I think a lot of us have a hard time doing. And there he is, he's Jesus, you know. Uh, We often concoct theologies that make him like really fortified, right? And yet consider how vulnerable he is that he he weeps on a regular basis in these texts, living close to the experience of suffering around him. What about meekness? If you watch Jesus go to the cross, you see him almost literally bridled and bound, right? And the powers around him try to take the strength from him and keep him down. What about uh, aching for righteousness and justice? Again, like if you read the Gospels, it's painfully clear that Jesus knew that hunger inside for things to be right. You, you hear it in his weeping over things that are not right. You also see it in his anger, in the kind of righteous indignation with which he speaks and acts in the world against the things that are not right in the world. This is not a person who has allowed himself to be numbed out. This is not a person who has distracted themselves from, from that gnawing feeling inside for things to be right. This is a person who is alive and awake to that feeling. What about the merciful? This is Jesus who, while on the cross, while being tortured and murdered, prays, Father, forgive them. While it's happening, not later after some therapy. (laughs) I usually need therapy to get to the point of forgiveness. Jesus just like, while it's happening, prays, forgive them, right? What about pure in heart? 
You read the Gospels and you discover that Jesus enters all of these dark corners in the world, the dark corners of the systems around him, the dark corners of the lives around him, and he just over and over again seems to see the divine there, seems to trust that like God is there. His vision has not been corrupted. Now, he's not naive. He knows how bad things are. He just also seems to know that even in the darkest corners and the worst moments, that's not the whole story. And what about peacemaking and losing belonging? Jesus, uh, over and over again, often the trouble that Jesus gets into is because the way that he just tramples over group lines. The, ones, the groups that he's supposed to belong to and the groups that he's been excluded from or others have been excluded from, Jesus gets into lots of trouble for trampling over group lines. One of my favorite examples early in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, the inaugural story of Jesus' ministry in Luke. So this is like Luke trying to help us understand what Jesus' life and ministry were all about. In that story, Jesus is in the synagogue with his people and he reads from their text and the prophets speaking about a time when God would live God's life through a person and that when God lived God's life through a person, all these good things would happen, like freedom for the captives and sight for the blind. So he reads this text and they're all on the edge of their seat and he says, right here, right now, it's happening through me. And they all get excited. God's gonna give, live, live God's life through one of ours, right? Like hometown boy's gonna be the hero. So they get all excited about it. And then Jesus like takes a left turn and he looks at all these people, his own people, and he says, I know you're excited about this, but let me tell you, you're gonna ask me to do miracles, big showy performances of the power of God in your midst. And the only thing you're gonna get is miracles like the day of our forefathers and ancestors when the prophets perform miracles for the outsiders. And he names two Gentile miracles. And then they try to kill him, literally. Literally. One minute, it's hometown boy's going to be the hero, amen, preacher, because you just said God's going to live God's life through you, and we are here, and we are a part of it. And Jesus, I think he senses this sort of reinforcing group boundaries. Like, yeah, we're on the right team, right? We picked the right one. And so he just blasts right over that group line and says, ah, you know what? God's going to be at work all over all of those lines, across all of those lines, including all kinds of people. And I, I think it's very clear that one of the reasons Jesus' life has ended is that you keep doing that. And there's nothing worse than an enemy except for a traitor. And Jesus isn't just an enemy, he's a traitor, right? And so Jesus speaking of, of the blessing of being a peacemaker is not theoretical to him, but I, I can't help but wonder if it was perhaps out there in the wilderness after he's baptized, after he hears that voice saying, beloved son, that he goes out in the wilderness to have that very message fortified in his life, right? He hears beloved son, child of God, but then he goes out into the wilderness into a lonely place, perhaps to have that identity, identity like forged in his heart so that he can come back to the world where all the lines have been drawn and he can keep breaking those lines and stepping across them and, and, and trying to make peace. And then we read Jesus as a blessing for the persecuted. And I don't know a more heightened experience of persecution than the one that Jesus experienced at the end of his life. That all the powers of empire and religion, like it all came together against him Everything conspired to end him. Jesus knows what he's talking about. If, if this is Jesus' understanding of, of what it is like to consent to God living God's life in your life, well, then I think the authority with which Jesus speaks is the authority of a person who has fully laid hold of the life of God has fully laid hold of the life of God. And if the life of God is his, if the life of God is fully his, well, then it's his to give, right? 
Like, like if Jesus has his hands on the life of God, then it's his to give. And so when he looks at others and he says nothing about your circumstance or your experience, nothing about your failures or your history, nothing about who you are or the lies that you have been told is enough to render you ineligible for this life. I'm telling you, you can still consent to this life. You can still open your heart to this life. You can still be the kind of person through whom this life is lived. I think we can trust him. I think the authority that they responded to was something inside telling them, this guy knows what he's talking about. And even if everything else in my life has told me that the life of God is not mine, something about the way he says it to me tells me it is. And so they rave about it, and some of them decide to follow him into it. And 2,000 years later, we're still living in the, the wake of generation after generation who has discovered that he knew what he was talking about and he was right that the life of God is freely given for you and, and to you and wants to be lived in you. And it's not something that we summon on our own and that we, that we just create from scratch, uh, but that it flows through us when we open our hearts to it and say yes. This, again, is why baptism is coming up for us at the end of all of this. So in the spring, I don't know when, sometime in the spring, sometime between like now and Easter, uh, we also want to invite people who would like to to be baptized. And what we're trying to say is this whole Sermon on the Mount thing is us trying to hear together exactly what it is Jesus is inviting us to. Like, why would you be baptized? Well, you would be baptized if you want to say yes to these things. And we're going to keep working that out together uh, between now and that time in the spring. And I just hope you have lots of time to sit with this and think about it and to listen, uh, not just to like what's being said from the stage, but to listen to your heart and the, th the things that are going on within uh, to see if you want to be a part of that. That's the intro to the Sermon on the Mount. Sound good? Amen. Um, <clears throat> come next week. It'll be very exciting. I'm not leaving. Uh, and then uh, may you know that the kingdom is yours. Uh, may you sense the authority of one who fully held the life of God so that when he tells you the life of God is yours, he means it. May you know that no poverty within you is enough to prevent it from being yours. No loss is enough to keep it from being yours. No meekness, no hunger, no ache is enough to keep it from being yours. May you let mercy flow through you. May you discover God hiding in the darkest corners of your life and this world. May you find yourself making peace by crossing the lines and when that happens and you are forsaken and abandoned, may you know that God claims you and that that is a belonging that can never be taken. May evil see you as a threat because God is living God's life through you. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.